Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. If you have questions for me, the preferred way is to email them to me, but you can leave them in the comments section and I will eventually pick them up. Okay, I hope you all got a chance to see my podcast this week with Alexander Barnes-Ross. We had a great discussion about social media and cultic control and Scientology, of course, and various aspects of that and our history with it. And uh, anyway, that was a lot of fun and a good podcast. And I also got to talk about, uh, in this week's uh, show that I did on Friday night, I really, really hope you guys will check it out. Because this is where I get to take some of these same principles and things and mechanisms and mental gyrations that people experience in cultic areas and bring it into a whole different sphere, which is artificial intelligence. And I got to talk about that a bit because I have some ideas about the development and research of artificial intelligence and how that's going and the news stories and media reports and, and uh direct discussions that I've had with people involved in this field, the engineers and coders over the years, have left some disturbing marks on me. And I've been putting some things together and thought um, a few thoughts about that and wanted to share them. And so, um, you know, none of it is particularly, uh, you know, doom and gloom. It's just an attempt to try to go, well, look, if we're going to do this, maybe we should take some other things into consideration so that we don't suffer from the law of unintended consequences, which seems to be a habit that human beings have when it comes to tech and utilizing tech in, in, in developing tech, going uh, all the way back to the crossbow and the longbow and the gun and the atomic weapons and now artificial intelligence. And there are people whose eyes are so much on the prize that they can't think straight and in fact become very culty. And so I did a little breakdown on all of that, and I really hope you guys will check that out. All right, so I also this week opened up channel memberships. Uh, there are three levels of memberships you can sign up for on YouTube. Uh, I have for years I have had a Patreon, and uh, you can go to Patreon and you can sign up and support this channel if you think this is a good channel, and I, I hope you do. And, um, but that's been limiting for some people. They don't want to go to a third party or support the show that way, or, you know, it's got various problems. And so I thought, well, here's another avenue of approach to support my work and, and help keep this whole thing going. So, and there's a little, you know, there's some, there's some perks and some fun things with that that go along with being a channel member. So you can check that out. Uh, there's a join button below this video on YouTube. And if you click on that, you'll see the three levels of membership. They're not, it's not a custom thing. It's one, two, or three. That's, those are the options. And I hope you'll uh, maybe, you know, uh, uh, help support the channel that way. Another uh, thing that I started doing this week, I dropped my first YouTube short. And I did a really fast talk because <laughs> it's only a minute. You only get a minute on these shorts. And uh, so I guess I'll call them critical shorts. And uh, to go along with the branding of my channel. And uh, and I defined what is coercive control. And I got it all packed into a minute, which was hard to do, by the way. Uh, so anyway, there will be much, many, many more of those dropping uh, over the next you know weeks and months as I you know sort of figure out how to use that medium to try to promote what I'm doing on this channel, give little gems of, of information that might help people. And, um, and anyway, like I said, try to help uh, promote, uh, you know, people coming here. 
And that's where I want to kind of go with my ask here before we get into the questions real fast is, uh, if you're enjoying this channel, if the content I'm putting out is informative, educational, and entertaining to you, then please share this work around. I want to grow this channel, and I think I have a valuable message, and I understand it's an incredibly niche message. It's not got broad, huge appeal. I don't do music videos or cat videos, but... Um, but there's still a lot of people out there that could really use this information. And I'm told that the information I put out is helpful, that it changes people's lives even. I get emails and phone calls and, and communications from people all the time about how this has helped them. And that's what this is about for me. So I really am going to ask you know, your help in, um, in spreading the word about this channel and my work. That all being said, let's get on with your questions. Matthias Lingstam, I initially thought the emotional tone scale only went from 4.0 enthusiasm at the highest down to 0.0 body death at the lowest. I've since found out that Thetans can experience a broader range of tones without the supposed limitations of their bodies, but I can't find any descriptions or definitions of these extended tones anywhere. What does minus 8.0 hiding and minus 30 can't hide mean? What does the lowest tone of minus 40.0 total failure entail? All right. Thank you very much for this question. And of course, you're talking about the expanded tone scale. And this is the subject of, I've already written the script. I'm already working, you know, breaking down the, the, the production of it of my tone scale video because this is a very key part of that. But I thought, well, you know, it's been taking me forever to get to that. And uh, so let's put this into Q&A form as well. Hubbard, and I'll show you on the screen here, Hubbard has an expanded tone scale that goes from 40.0 at the very top to minus 40.0 total failure at the bottom. And this is the entire range, Hubbard said, of the spiritual entity or the Thetan. It can experience a wider range of uh, or array of emotional experiences than just a body can. Um, now, this is a this is all nonsense. Okay, um, total nonsense. It's, it, but that's Hubbard's sort of theory of this: is when you're in a body, the body is only able to express itself to a certain degree, and when you look at the the, the full range and power, you could say, of a spiritual entity and what it's capable of being aware of, what it's capable of accomplishing, then you're looking at this higher level, these higher level tones that go all the way up to 40.0. Um, serenity of beingness is the top of the tone scale. It's just this sort of state of existence where you simply exist in this sort of heavenly, serene state. There is no need for games or any sort of random activity, what Hubbard calls randomity. There's no need or compulsion or feeling of any connection with anything because you simply are. And Hubbard said that's not really the ideal place for a Thetan to be, interestingly enough. He said 20.0, more in this action sort of band, 
is more where a thetan really thrives and survives. And this is where you're, you know, bopping around the Tom Cruise kind of level where you're just kind of all over the place getting all these amazing things done and the world is your oyster and nothing can stop you and you're just in action and games and and it's just this amazing place to be where nothing's really stopping you or getting in your way too much and you're just barreling through, right? And it's not a matter of getting angry or upset or being stopped by things. It's a matter of just powering through and and basically, basically manifesting your will anywhere, anyhow, anytime, any place. That's kind of the concept of, of the higher bands of the tone scale. Lower bands, on the other hand, are the exact opposite of this. This is where you have a Thetan who has become so degraded over time and through his interactions with the physical universe and with the trauma and the charge that develops, this, this mental mass that Hubbard says accumulates over time. And the Thetan will accumulate these things. And the best analogy to this is Jacob Marley. Uh, from A Christmas Carol, the, the the ghost character who visits Ebenezer Scrooge, and he's got all these chains connected with him, which represent all of the misdeeds and evil actions and the weight of those that this that this ghost is having to carry around with him everywhere he goes. That's exactly the kind of analogy for the mental mass and charge that Hubbard says all of us carry around because we have accumulated this through our resistance and through pushing and pulling in the physical universe. It actually is, is discharging and creating energy and stuck energy. He calls these ridges where they're just, they're just sort of standing waves. And, uh, and if you're an electronics guy, you understand what a standing wave is, and you know it has nothing to do with any of this. But this is how Hubbard used electronics terminology to try to, to give some sort of scientific veneer of legitimacy to these ideas. But basically, it's the same idea that Charles Dickens had in, in A Christmas Carol, right? Is your sins have actual weight and mass, and you're going to carry them around with you. And not just your sins, but all the times that you had a problem or that you were in a struggle of some kind, somebody else's energy was, was being exerted against you and you were exerting energy against them and it accumulated. It, it was like a, it, he makes the example of two fire hoses coming together and creating this mass of water. And if you can imagine that sort of frozen in time and sort of stuck there, that's the that's exactly the description Hubbard gives. So these masses, all of this charge, weigh the Thetan down in feelings and attitudes and emotions and 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 stuck pictures of failure or an inability to succeed or an inability to move forward. And they just get locked in more and more and more of this mass. And this drives them down the tone scale, their ability to experience life, to reach, to uh, manifest their will goes less and less and less. And when you're below body death as a Thetan and, and, and Hubbard and other Scientologists in my time in Scientology inferred or flat out said, most Thetans on this planet are in the negative band. They are way down there in failure and 
and can't, you know, and the owning bodies and approval from bodies. And, and how does this manifest? Well, it manifests that the fate and the spirit is constantly this needy, graspy, you know, sort of thing that doesn't really have any independent will or, um, independence of thinking or initiative. It's constantly stuck to and, and sort of commanded by these, these mental masses and the content that is stored in these mental masses. It's not just black pieces of volcanic charge that's around you. There's significances connected with these things. They mean things, in other words, right? Like I mentioned this fight earlier. Well, maybe one lifetime or a whole series of lifetimes is actually where Hubbard goes with this. A whole series of lifetimes could be the back and forth of cops and robbers. You're a cop, you're a robber. You're a cop, you're a robber. And this, this energy, you know, manifestation of, of trying to be a cop and then trying to be a robber, and they, they bump into each other, and the Thetan will kind of flip identities. And there's a whole, you know, there's a whole bunch of more stuff to this that doesn't, that's not directly related to this question. But I'm getting into what are called goals, problem, masses, or GPMs. And Hubbard says, if, it says ultimately, the reactive mind is not actually, it's, it's got all these engrams, all these moments of pain and unconsciousness stored in them. But those engrams only kind of glom onto these GPMs. And this is where the real problems are coming from in terms of your reactive mind, is from these GPMs and the identities and, and various things that are all tied up in this. Okay, it's very, I mean, I don't know if you guys know, like this is when we talk about how Scientology is complicated and deep. I mean, this is where it goes, is like this really crazy stuff. Uh, so Hubbard, this is all early 1960s material and all through the early and mid-1960s, Hubbard was developing these ideas. And this is what eventually led to the OT levels. You know, these GPMs I'm talking about are the subject of OT level two, taking these things apart. So, um, and, and it's also earlier when you're trying to go clear. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird because why would you be having to take these things apart if they're part of the reactive mind? Just more gobbledygook, right? But it's, so, it's, so I'm explaining it to you in such a way that I hope it's coming across kind of coherent and, and, and sensible, but it's, it's really not, okay? There's so many holes in this and so many places this stuff just falls apart logically. But I'm trying to give you a sort of sensible explanation of it. So you can imagine that thetans in the lower bands of the tone scale are all wrapped up and stuck in these things and can't see the forest for the trees. They can't even barely be, they don't really even have much in the way of self-awareness, except for their failures, right? As we get down to the very bottom where they've gone down through propitiating the bodies and trying to get approval from bodies and trying to, you know, get other bodies to, to uh, you know, worshiping bodies, I think is one of the tones. And then you go down through these various levels until you get to minus 40, which is the most decadent, degraded, awful place that a Phaeton can get to in terms of its awareness and ability. And this is total failure. And here's where a Phaeton is basically just being a rock. You know, they're not even up to being a body or having a body or even being consciously aware much. You know, they're really pretty sub subconscious or not subconscious, sort of uh, comatose. That was, the, that was the word I was looking for. Uh, they're really down there, right? A, a to and a Thetan can't die. See, here's the thing is, is you can't stop existing. That's impossible. Uh, it, spiritually speaking in Scientology, there is no death. But there, is, there are states that are kind of worse than death. 
And I think that's kind of what Hubbard was trying to make the point of is that, is that, oh, you thought body death was bad. You thought dying was the worst it could get. And that was, that was a failure for your life. Oh no, oh no, 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 no. It gets much worse than that. And when you die as a Thetan, well, you don't die, but the equivalent of that is you're just being a rock somewhere. You know, you're just, you're so far down the line that uh, good luck ever even being able to recognize that anybody else exists or anything else exists because you're just so bleh that you can't even, you know, you can't even perceive the world around you. These are the ideas that come along with this lower tone scale. There is very, very little actual description or information of these tones and this information. So what I'm giving you is sort of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a compendium of all my, you know, thinking and, and reading and understanding of this from my experience as a Scientologist. So I hope that helps clarify a little bit about what these, what the tone scale is about and, and the Thetan's relationship to it. And uh, there you go. Reiki. Based on Tom Cruise's deplorable behavior, and sorry for saying this, watching some past Scientologist channels, I've started thinking that one of the appeals of Scientology might be that you get to feel really superior. After all, you're going to be a god, and the wogs don't get it. After leaving Scientology, does that not seem to stick? I just look at some of the ex-Scientologists, and much as I like them, I just wonder about whether ex-Scientologists realize the sustained damage that has been done to them. The lack of empathy that lingers, the ability to go after other people's relentlessly, the smirks, the sneers, these just seem to be a Scientology state of mind that lingers. I wonder how many of them would have left had it not been for Miscavige. I'm guessing they would all have stayed, and since I strongly believe that is the case, it bothers me because it's such a human thing. Why do things have to get so bad for us to change our lives? Also, when a person leaves a destructive relationship, to truly leave, does that not require one truly looks at what one found appealing about it? What one closed one's eyes to? What one ended up accepting and maybe ended up doing to others? I think it's a humbling experience to realize deep down why one did not stop. Kind of like soldiers cannot simply say that they followed orders. In my experience, there's a payoff in every relationship, even the bad ones. And you won't be truly free till you look that in the eye. Only children are really exempt from that rule and only while they are children. I think that is the only way to avoid another bad situation by facing what the payoffs were in that situation. Would you agree or do you think it really only is a matter of outside forces manipulating you? I think it cannot only be manipulation. Okay, big question here. And this goes along with things I've already said many, many times and put on record as far as my own recovery and the process of that and how there is this real dilemma. It's a real moral dilemma for people who come out of cultic situations to eventually have to deal with or face or realize that they were not only victims, but they were also victimizers, right? They were also people who victimized other people. That's part and parcel of almost every cult experience, even if you want to just say, well, you know, encouraging others and getting other people on board or recruiting people or, you know, auditing people or, you know, training people in Scientology. Let's keep this in a Scientology context. Um, you know, all of this is, is relatively abusive behavior from an objective point of view, but when you're in it, that's the last thing you're thinking. Your mind and your entire intent 
is on helping people. And at least you don't necessarily believe, unless you are one of a minority percentage of people in these cults, uh, there are people who do realize this stuff is bad and they get off on hurting other people. But that's that's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. Um, what In the main, people get involved in Scientology because they want to help. They want to help themselves. They want the ego boost. They want to move up the bridge. They want to become a god. But they also truly, truly want to help other people. And they are put into a situation and that situation is contextualized for them that this is the single most helpful, amazing thing anywhere, ever. And, and it's far from Scient only Scientologists who think that way. I've met many Christians, many uh, people, followers of Islam. Uh, I have met people who have no religious status whatsoever who glom onto alt-medicine or onto some other pseudo-spiritual or... Um, you know, alternative healing methods that are absolutely as convinced as Scientologists that what they're involved in and what they're doing is pure, white, good, wonderful, holy, could not possibly have anything wrong with it at all. Or if there are any things wrong, any things that are wrong with it, it's human error or fallibility or somebody's messing up and how they're doing it. Or, or, or. It's not, it's never the subject itself. Uh, and I've seen this with chiropractic, with homeopathy, with uh, spirituality, with crystals, with magnets, with Christianity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, of course, there is no system of belief or idea that can't be thought of or invested in to an extreme degree. Anybody can do it with anything. And in the world of Scientology, of course, that has tragic consequences almost 100% of the time, given that Scientology is designed to be abusive and deceitful and harmful to people. And it's not designed to help them. It's designed to enslave them. Um, but you don't see that. You don't see any part of that uh, when you're in it. And so when you look squarely at that and then you see, well, what would it take to get somebody to start changing their mind about that or start seeing that maybe this isn't the holiest of holies. Maybe there is something wrong here. Maybe things are rotten in Denmark to some degree, right? Maybe, maybe something ain't right here. Well, what's it going to take? Well, they're so invested as an individual. And this is especially true, by the way, for second generation members, more so than, than, than many first generation members. Um, I have seen fanatical first-generation members, don't get me wrong. But when you're raised in it, when you've never had any other idea than that this is the shit, this is the stuff, and this is exactly, this is the normal, usual, regular way the world is supposed to operate, right? You've never been given another point of view or, or any kind of ability to, to think skeptically or critically about what you're being taught and raised in. So this is especially true for second-generation members that this is normal for them. The, the, the Scientology abuses and nonsense and thinking and the Ingrams and the Thetans and, and even if they get up to Xenu, like all of that for them is completely normal. And that's a hard thing for people who are outside of it to grasp, which is why I try to constantly draw analogies to being raised in a Christian home. Because a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about that. And you go, oh, yeah, sure. Well, that's, and a lot of you think, well, that is true. 
No, it's not. It's just another belief system that you just happen to grow up with, right? And so you absolutely positively normalize it for yourself as the absolute truth. No different than Scientologists. Just think if your thoughts or beliefs or ideas about your religion, right, just transfer that right over to what Scientologists who grow up in this stuff or who come in and adopt this as their belief set, this is what they accept as real and true. So what does it take to, 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 to pop somebody out of that? Well, they're going to have to be shown. They're going to have to experience in an, in, a, in an undeniable, irrefutable way that this is not normal, it's not real, or there's something wrong with this. It's not a failing on the part of a human being that it requires us to experience something in order for us, you know, like really emotionally, in order for us to start questioning everything. That's, a, that's normal human behavior. That's not abnormal psychology. That's normal psychology. Um, and, there's, and there's lots of benefits to that because it gives us the strength and discipline and power to stick with and fulfill our emotional needs. If we were, you know, loosey-goosey, doesn't, you know, no, no, I don't really believe anything and anything is possible and anything could be real and anything is, and anything is true. What's true for you is true and what's true for me is true and la 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 and let's all skip through the fields, right? That's a, that's a little postmodern. That's a little weird. It's not reality and it's not how we actually think or approach things. Our minds are set up or our psychology is set up so that when we have our needs being met, that's happiness. <laughs> that's what we want. And we will fight for that. We will push for that. We will exert a great deal of energy to continue to have our emotional needs fulfilled. All the way up to the point where something happens and suddenly they're not being fulfilled. And whether that's somebody else doing something to you or whether that's you observing other people doing something to other people or sometimes whether that's you doing something to other people and going, oh my God, this, this, well, that wasn't help. I hurt them. Oh, what happened there? And, and, and it usually takes a number of these kinds of things or episodes to happen before a person will like, oh, oh, wait a second. Maybe everything I've assumed and thought was true this whole time wasn't, isn't. Maybe I need to reevaluate what I thought of as normal or real or true. And that is what leads, to, that's where the seeds start getting planted or the ideas start getting questioned. And it's like, oh, wait a second. And you can start thinking a little more critically about this subject or topic. So I want to really stress how normal everything, I'm, I, I, all that is. It's not abnormal and it's not just something that happens in cults. Where with, with cults, it's such a great way to explain these principles or talk about this because it's all dialed up to 11. It's so obvious that this person is so heavily invested in something that's completely ludicrous. But it's not ludicrous to them. And, I, and I, you know, you really, I, I really got to stress that. So when I came out of Scientology, uh, because I had experienced, a, a, a you know, 10 years of various experiences that kind of convinced me this was not what I thought it was. Then went down the internet rabbit hole and really confirmed it all. Okay. Come out of something like that. And the first thing is the betrayal. 
the feeling of, oh my God, this, they, these people have lied to me. This group is, you know, L. Ron Hubbard's a scumbag, lying, you know, cocksucker, right? And David Miscavige is just continuing to do more of the same and these assholes and rah, and you want to get back, right? Because you feel you've wasted all this emotional investment, which means all this energy and time and dedication and support and money and everything else you gave to it. And it was all based on bullshit. And you are furious about that. That's a completely normal reaction for people who come out of these things. It certainly was where I lived. And it, and it tends to be where people live for a good long time. There are these five stages of grief. Well, there are five stages of what I call five stages of acceptance. And, you know, and there's denial and then there's anger, okay? And that anger stage can last and people can get stuck there or kind of hang out there for a very long time. Sometimes they kind of never come out of it because they don't process and think through and work on and get therapy or get education or understand themselves or understand the situation any more than I'm angry, this is wrong, and it's got to be stopped. And that's where they live. And that is where you will get a good deal of this, you know, poking and prodding and let's make fun of this and let's ridicule this and nah, you know, and, and we're going to hurt these people. We're going to get back at them for what they did to us. You know, it's the, the, the vengeance and all of that is, you know, it kind of underlies some of this stuff. And this is normal. <laughs> I want to stress, right? This is all normal human reactions. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's the best, but it is certainly normal behavior. And I lived, in, I lived there for a number of years. I was furious. I just happened to put on a public persona that wasn't that because I knew that the best way to communicate about this and the best way to get back at Scientology was to deliver the actual facts of the matter and break it all down for people so they could understand it so they wouldn't fall for it. You know, if I just tell you all the bad things that were done to me, you just go, okay, whatever. I, you know, that's that really, or you might go, God, that really sucks. I really feel bad for you, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen to me. That doesn't mean it's going to happen to Joe or Sally or Sue just because it happened to you. And that's, and that logic holds true. That's absolutely right. But if I break down for you why this is an abusive subject for everybody and I present all the facts and evidence of that, now I've made it. We're never going to be part of this. You don't want to have anything to do with it. And you're going to tell every single person you ever meet, yeah, this is bad for everybody. And that's a different message. And I did that on purpose. So, so that's, you know, kind of how I chose to deal with it. And a lot of people deal with it that way. I'm not unique or different, you know, for doing that, but that's, that's how I chose to deal with it. And my anger over time, as I got therapy and more and more and more and more education on this, because that's the route I went really hard in on was learning about all this stuff. So I could share this information and more effectively break it down for you guys that dissipated the anger but the therapy is what really kind of put the cap on it made me start flipping the script on myself of oh god victim victimizer oh yeah there's this whole other thing that has to come into play which i believe my own this is my opinion 
and I could be wrong about this. I, I don't think I am. But, you know, there's there are more stages to this. There's this level, there's this place to get to of acceptance where you kind of go, oh, it is what it is. It was what it was. I don't, I don't have to feel emotionally anchored to this thing anymore. I can let it go. I can let that anger go. I can let that fear go. I can let all that depression go and that anxiety concerning this topic in my, in my own history. I can just let it go. But getting there is really hard when it's been years and years of abusive behavior toward, your, toward you. And, you know, part of that picture is your abusive behavior towards others. And I believe a full recovery from a, a condition or situation like this requires a full, honest look at both sides of that, which is kind of what you were bringing up here in your question, which is why I've been, you know, circling around all of this. So, so you know, the, the, the things you describe, um, you know, the lingering um, lack of empathy, the ability to go after people relentlessly, the smirks and sneers and all that, it's all indicative and symptomatic, as far as I'm concerned, of the journey, the journey of recovery. It's part of it, right? And, and you guys have seen my public face. You don't necessarily see all the things I say off camera, right? I've ridiculed, sneered, jeered, laughed, you know, done all of that. Of course I have, right? Made jokes at other people's expense over all of this stuff. Had to spend years getting over and still struggle with, you know, ego issues and self-importance and, and definitely getting on soapboxes and feeling very self-righteous and realizing that's part of our human condition too. It's not just a cult phenomena, right? But when a cult is dedicated to pumping up your ego and your self-importance and your you know, and giving you lots and lots of reasons to be self-righteous, it can take a long time for that to diffuse or sort of disperse in your mind. And if you're not dedicatedly working on that and recognizing that those problems exist in you and that these are things that you could become better at and that you could have friendlier, happier, uh, easier relationships with people if you weren't that way, those are the things that that start the dawning realizations that lead to what I would think of or consider a full recovery. But that's years of work, you understand, for people, especially second gens. It's years of work. And it takes discipline and it takes dedication and it takes realizing, you know, it's that old saw, you know, you, you can't handle a problem if you don't realize you have one. The first step in handling the problem is, you know, your addiction is realizing you have one. And that's very true. That is very true. And not everybody comes at this the same way. And it doesn't necessarily have as much to do with personality types, although I think that is a factor. I think people approach life and they bring with them certain things, genetic code and, and, and their, their biology and all of that kind of makes them very much who they are. And some people can overcome that or think about or deal with that. And some people don't want to. They don't see a problem and they don't ever want to see a problem. It's not my problem. It's not, I, I am perfect. I am fine. There is nothing wrong with how I am. Okay, then cool. You know, then we don't have to do anything with that. And, and yet they will continue to struggle or have problems or issues and they'll blame other people. And it's always going to be other people's faults. It's never their fault. And you just go, okay, well, that's kind of where that person's at, you know, and that, that's, again, not 
necessarily just culty stuff. That's just kind of who they are. And the cult adds to that, takes away from that, builds on that, tends to build on that a lot um, because there's a lot of ego there, right? But it's just individuals and their emotional needs and and what is it about life or about their relationships that fulfills them. Different answer for every single person uh, to one degree or another. And so we can only kind of talk broadly about this by categorizing emotional needs and and how we kind of interact and that kind of stuff. Um, now, as far as, um, you know, this business of, I, I think I've addressed this, but just to say, um, accepting what one has been doing to others, you know, the haunting of experience that, uh, why one did not stop. Yeah, there's a, there's a moral foundation here, a comment that I'd like to make, right? Which is the group that we're part of, or the groups that we are part of, the social networks we're part of, who our friends are, who our family is where we work, right? The people we interact with. Um, these all are incredibly strong influences on our behavior because that's what sets the standard for what's acceptable behavior for you. You have your own ideas of what is and isn't acceptable, but it's always judged against the group. Always. And if you don't think so, you're lying to yourself because it is. It's just a fact. So, the group you find yourself in has an incredible amount to do with how you're going to behave and what you're going to think is okay and not okay, what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. So the Scientology world, the Sea Org specifically, is an awful place. It is a place of very low moral standards. They uphold themselves and talk to each other as though they are the most moral, righteous people in the world and that nothing they do is wrong. Everything they do is, in the, is, is to advance mankind and produce a cleared planet and end war and end criminality and end psychosis and insanity. They truly believe that. But everything they do moves in the exact opposite direction to those goals. And that's the crazy of cults, is that they say they're doing one thing when they're running in the other direction. But the people involved can believe anything. Anybody can, if they give them a good enough reason. And if you have a good enough reason, I'm saving the planet, any, any behavior is justified. And that becomes a habit. That becomes normalized, like I was saying. That becomes your normal. So when you come out of that situation, if you're not reevaluating, looking at, and changing, you know, realizing just that much, just the fact that you've come out of that now and new rules apply. You're in a new group. You're in a different situation now. You're in the real world. You're not in that bubble world anymore. There are so many ex-cult members, not just ex-Scientologists, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, ex-Mormons, you know, ex-Christians, so many uh, ex-Islam come out of that situation carrying all that baggage of self-righteousness and reason, all the reasons why they were doing what they were doing and feeling right for what they were doing that it that it brings it comes out into the real world and it can take um, like I said it can take a long time to deal with that, uh, but the first step is recognizing the problem exists, and and it's a bigger barrier than you might imagine, 
because it's one of those things like depression where the, 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 the problem sort of prevents the cure gets in the way of it, right? You're trying to help somebody, you're trying to maybe show them that maybe they're not all that, or maybe there's a problem, or maybe they were wrong about something, but the ego is so strong, and the need for themselves to feel that way is so strong that they can't hear what you're saying. They just can't. And and it's like talking to a brick wall, right? And that is incredibly frustrating for everybody around the person, but they're, you know, they're only going to change when it gets real to them. When again, they have that experience of, oh, wait a minute, something's happening that is a direct contradiction or violation of my own morals or my own view of the world and how it should be. Oh, you know, maybe they do something that destroys a relationship or they yell at the wrong person at the wrong time, or they, you know, they do something really violent or really bad. And maybe that causes them to suddenly go, oh, my God, I did that. Oh, shit, right? I got a problem. I have something I need to deal with. It's not their fault. It was me. That can be very slow in coming for some people. And for some people, it never happens. That's the sad part to me. Um, but it is the reality of, of our existence. And it's, again, not just a cult thing. But we, we can see it so easily and so obviously in the cult world. So anyway, kind of went on and on here. Hope all this helped clarify or answer your questions and, um, and give you some, some stuff about uh, cult recovery, because that's really what all this falls under. John O'Nolan, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Scientology book released in the early 90s, What is Scientology? Out of all the books released by the church, this was, for me, by far their most easy-to-read book and actually enjoyable. It really got me curious about Scientology, such was its ability to explain Scientology concepts and make them seem reasonable, even though I knew they were an insidious cult that ruined lives. It also did a great job in its, in its use of illustrations, and its front cover draws you in. So after its release, was there an explosion in public coming into the orgs? Did it sell well? Did Scientologists love the book? Were they all talking about it? Am I right in thinking it does a good job in selling Scientology, unlike every book before it? All right, Jono, thank you very much for this question. And I, I'm kind of uh, amused a little bit by it because clearly the book appealed to you. It's, it's very obvious. But And I'll show some screenshots here of the book and some of its contents. Um, this book did not sell Scientology. It did not do well. It was sold in bookstores. It came out in the early 90s, like you said, when there were still, you know, B. Daltons and, and, and Barnes and Nobles all over the place and bookstores were a place people went. And uh, they tried very, very hard to get this book. And it's a big book. It's like two inches thick and it's very heavy and it presents, you know, the full range of Scientology to people. And... Um, you know, this, this, uh, it's got success stories and it's got various testimonials and it's got all these statistics and it's supposed to be this really amazing, interesting thing. Well, it, it wasn't and it didn't. And it sort of uh, went by the wayside as all things Scientology do because Scientology, as you know, is an insidious, destructive cult and everybody knows that. And so, um, so no, this book did not really do that well and did not sell Scientology and nobody was coming in because they saw or read what is Scientology. It just wasn't anywhere near the, um, the, the barn burning success or raging uh, bestseller that the church wanted it to be. Uh, and there you go. 
Joy George, has anyone ever been satisfied becoming clear without moving further up the bridge? If someone did in fact say, I'm happy with the state of clear, does Scientology respect their wishes or do they cajole them into continuing on? All right, thank you very much for asking this question, Joy. And what we have here is, um, yes, there are people who absolutely get to the state of clear and go, you know what, this is awesome, this is wonderful, I, I don't need any more. And they are immediately sat down and told in no uncertain terms that not only are they not done, but that they are at risk, that they are in danger. And this is a little bit of an interesting thing. It's called the no interference area. And it's an area where you're trying to get people. Let me, let me read you the definition. It's the zone from, um, okay, the exact definition of the no interference area is the zone from R6 solo to OT3 does not do anything except keep the PC winning for R6 solo to OT3. This is the critical band of the grade chart. This is the point. This is the critical band of the gradation chart. Uh, you don't do anything else in this zone except get your ass to OT. Hubbard basically lays out in, in, um, in bulletins here and in the um, RJ67 lecture that getting up to OT3 is your top, top priority uh, after you have achieved the state of clear. Now, you're not technically in the non-interference zone until you do a couple more setup kind of actions, but... It's an area where you're not supposed to be doing a whole lot. You're not supposed to be doing much of anything except getting up to and through OT3. Uh, Hubbard was very, very serious about getting people onto the, you know, to find out about the Xenu narrative and to get those body thetans addressed because that was going to be, now that they didn't have their own reactive mind in the, in the world of the Scientology belief set, now the body thetans are kind of unrestricted and... And the and the and the Thetan's awareness is no longer on his own trauma, but it's going to be on the trauma and collected stress and mental mass and energies connected with all of these body Thetans. That's the big problem that you now have as a Thetan. You've always had it, but your own reactive mind was kind of sitting between you and all of them, and, then, and now that this reactive mind is gone. Oh, baby, right? And it's kind of like body Thetan's unleashed, right? Body Thetan's gone wild. And who knows what's going to happen, but you're not going to know or understand why you're having the thoughts you're having, why things are happening to you, why, where some of these bizarre ideas or impulses or um, thoughts are coming from. And you're going to think it's you. And it's not you. It's your body Thetan's. So you, so you got to get in the know on that quick. So the entire stress of uh, Scientology to a clear is get your ass to OT3 and do not do anything until you do. Um, and technically, there are other things you could do during that time period. Uh, Hubbard talks about drug handlings. And of course, people can go off and do superpowers, clears, or they can, you know, go do a cause resurgence rundown and run around a light pole for you know a couple weeks but the priority is get to ot3 okay i think i made that point and um thank you very much for that question it's a good one michael yoder in a lecture to auditors from 1963 lrh talks about the itza line overcharged areas 
tone arm action, I'm guessing on the E-meter, and running routine 1C. Can you help me understand what these things are? These are terms I've never heard. Okay, Michael, tech corner time. Uh, that's why I left your question for last here. You're always asking me these technical queries about the minutia of Scientology technical words and concepts. And so I like uh, sharing this with people just to kind of show how kind of silly all this stuff is. So um, the ITSA line is a, is a thing that Hubbard invented where the auditor, in an auditing session, you have an auditor and a preclear, right? And, um, and whether you're using an e-meter or not, the auditor is asking the preclear questions. And sometimes the, the auditor's questions can be phrased or modeled around what is it? What, what, what's it? What's the what's it line? What's that? What's this? What's that? What's the, the other thing, right? It's uh, the auditor asks what's it? And the preclear responds, it's a. It's a this, it's a that, it's a this, it's a that. The preclear is telling the auditor what's on his mind or what pictures are coming up or what ideas are coming to his mind. And he is what in Scientology is called itza-in. It's a verb, right? Itza. Uh, it's a this, it's a that. Okay, you kind of get the idea? Um, it's silly, it's goofy, but it's the way Hubbard kind of modeled the back and forth between the auditor and the preclear during certain kinds of of processes. It's not always, it's not everything the preclear says, uh, but you don't want to interrupt the preclear or stop the preclear when he's it saying, when he's going on and telling you what's up and answering your questions and giving you legitimate answers, that's the preclear's it's a line. And that's the communication line from the auditor to the preclear and the preclear to the auditor. Um, overcharged areas would be areas I described earlier in this very show, the whole concept of mental mass and charge. So I'm not going to do that again. Overcharged areas are places where you've wandered into where there is too much shit for you to deal with. You are overstimulated. There is, there is, you, you've entered areas that you shouldn't be in because you're not ready to deal with it yet, right? You're carrying around. I will say this. I didn't say this earlier. You're carrying around with you, according to Scientology theory, so much charge. I mean, trillions of years of accumulated charge. How, how much is that? You know, how, many, how, how much weight are you carrying around with you in, in stuck energy flows? A lot. And some of those incidents are connected to things that are so horrific, so awful, and so overpowering to you as a spiritual entity that you cannot, you're not up to a place where you're able to deal with that yet. That's the whole, the whole point of having graduated levels in Scientology or be, you know, that whole ascended masters thing is you're ascending in spiritual awareness and ability. And by and part of that ascension is it's kind of a triangular or conal, conal sort of thing where you're able at the lower levels to deal with this much. As you rise up in levels and ability, your ability to deal with stuff becomes greater. And the, and the very quality and quantity of charge that you can deal with in an auditing session supposedly changes. So when you're on the OT levels, you're, you know, you're moving you know, bulldozer worth of sand around on the beach. If, if all the beach sand, you know, in Santa Monica Beach, if Santa Monica Beach was all the charge you carried around with you, all that sand. Well, at the lower levels, you're tackling it with a spoon. <laughs> you know, you're, woo, woo, 
here we go, right? And and even tackling a spoon worth of charge or a or a little sand pail worth of charge is like, I feel amazing, right? That's what you can deal with. But as you move on up the OT levels and you're dealing as a big Thetan now with big charge, now you got a bulldozer and you're just like shoving that sand all over the place, right? That's kind of the analogy here. So overcharged areas are where you're getting into, into stuff that you're not ready for. Tone arm action has to do with the, a dial on the e-meter called the tone arm. It's the dial that adjusts the needle on the dial. You have a needle moving around and you have this lever, this tone arm, which can adjust the needle. And if the needle falls off the dial, you need to move the tone arm to bring it back. And the idea, the theory of Scientology auditing is, and the e-meter, is that when the tone arm is going down, that is charge erasing. And when the tone arm goes up, when there's more resistance, in other words, to the electrical flow, that, that resistance is coming from your charge, your mental mass, literally impinging itself on the body. So the tone arm goes up, and then the tone arm comes down through the course of auditing. It goes up, it goes down all the time. And the again, this is all Scientology theory. There's, there's no reality to any of this. I always have to say that because people think I'm, you know, promoting Scientology sometimes. It, it, this is all bullshit, okay? But the theory of the e-meter holds that when the tone arm goes up, charge comes in, you continue running the process or doing the commands or procedure, and the, the mass will blow. It will erase. It will be gone, and the tone arm will come down. And every measure of the tone arm coming down is tone arm action, or TA, or TAA, different different uh, phrases for this in Scientology. Routine 1C was a particular kind of auditing process or procedure that Hubbard developed in the early 60s, which used the motion of the tone arm rather than the needle to determine whether something was worth running or not. And usually this was done on a dynamic assessment, which meant you uh, assessed on an e-meter. You would watch the needle to see what would happen when you called out various um, names or titles or, or representations of the various dynamics and, and activities connected with the dynamics. And so uh, Routine 1C was looking for the tone arm moving around in response to that and then addressing and taking those subjects up. And uh, that was just one of hundreds of ways Hubbard came up with of addressing uh, spiritual travail. There you go. All right, folks. So that's our show for this week. I hope you found it entertaining, informative, and educational as always. And I hope my answers uh, were, uh, yeah, so sufficient. That all being said, I hope I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.